Hello, and welcome to the Property Solopreneur podcast, a show for property investors and developers who want to build and grow their own profitable businesses. I'm sharing with you my decades of property experience and interviewing many other successful property people who are happy to share their varied and priceless knowledge freely. Business doesn't need to be hard, and nor do you need to be lucky. But as a certified strategist, I know you need a plan to work to. And a good start is by listening to other people's successes and failures. Why reinvent the wheel? This allows us to have a more in-depth knowledge of the wider property world. Welcome to this week's episode of The Property Solopreneur. And during my mentoring sessions, the subject of lawyers comes up actually quite a lot because they're being too slow, they're raising too many questions, and sometimes they don't even seem to understand or be able to do what the investor wants them to do. Well, if you've listened to the episode with Paul Ribbons, you'll know that he views the right solicitor as being even more important than having the right money team. Why? Because it's all about being able to buy discounted deals um, or properties that no one else will touch with a barge pole. It's all down to having the right solicitor. You know, the, the solicitor who, well, all this stuff is just ordinary bread and butter for them. Paul's fastest purchase from offer to completion was 24 hours. Yes, 24 hours, pretty fast. But that was all down to the fact that the lawyer knew exactly what was needed to be done and could do it. So it's the truth that the more property you do, the more problems you are going to need to have solving. And some of them are even things you know are a problem until you go to do them. You know, lease options, overages, missing freeholders. This is everyday stuff to lawyers in the know. But to your average high street solicitor who deals with retail clients, this is the world of fantasy and verging on almost impossible. My guest this morning, I've known for over 20 years since I bought my first property. He's a known name in property circles. You'll find him in many of the online property groups. And he's a very rare thing, a lawyer with a portfolio. Over the years, I've signposted a lot of my investors and mentees to his firm. And I've watched with great interest as yet another impossible scenario is unpicked and a sale goes through. Well, welcome, Tim, to the Property Solopreneur. For those people who haven't met you either online, because I know you're very prolific in a lot of the Facebook groups and, and, and all that sort of thing, um, and who've never actually worked with you, who are you? What do you do? Good question. My name's Tim Bishop. I own a law firm. Um, my law firm is called Banalagan Bishop. Um, and I got about, in fact, we did check last week, about 73 staff to my surprise, a few part-timers, a few consultants, but yeah, quite a few, as a result of which we cover most areas, I guess, that you'd expect a high street firm to cover, but we do specialise in certain areas. And so we have in particular a property investor team, and we also have a specialist leasehold team that do nothing but lease extension and right to manage an enfranchisement, possibly the largest, most specialist team of its type in the country. We also have a specialist property, lit property litigator, we're taking on another one, and all the other things you'd expect law firms to do. So I was going to say, that's an awful lot more than most people have. Yeah. Yeah, and we also have a, the, our latest recruit. It's fantastic. Is our, we've got a good private client team dealing with wills and probate and things. But in the last nine months, we've taken on a fantastically experienced trusts, IHT planning, and wealth planning person, and she's really specialist. So one by one, we're punching above our weight. Yeah, we do a lot of work for investors. We love working with investors because I'm an investor myself. I was going to say you are an investor, which is how I came across you first of all. Because um, I, you know, I first met you when very early on uh, in property. I must have been must have been near the turn of the century. <laughs> and one of the things that struck me was that you are not only a lawyer, but you're a lawyer that buys property for yourself. You have a portfolio. You're a rare breed. Why do you think more more solicitors don't indulge? 
and use their skills? I don't know. I suppose. I hadn't thought of it, but I've got a theory why lawyers don't change. My solicitors, uh, why my practices don't change and why they're very conservative. I'll share that with you very quickly. You can edit it out if you don't want it, but it's my pet theory. I think solicitors are are immune to change for three reasons. First of all, the average age of firms uh, and partners. Last time I looked a few years ago, it was 58, 59. So by the time you get to that stage, you know, they're not youngsters, perhaps set in their ways, number one. Number two, we're a bit arrogant, a bit like primary school teachers. When when you've got a, a youngster and you go to a primary school teacher, they put you on the tiny, tiny tots chair and they look down at you. And in my experience, they tend to talk down to you because all day they're talking down to little ones. Yes. Um, and I think solicitors are the same. You come to us for the answer. So we always think we have the answer. So we can be a little bit on the arrogant side. We think we know what we're doing. And lastly, when you come to us for an answer, we look at statute and we look at precedent, court precedents. As a result of which, what effectively it means is you're looking back to predict the future. And so you're very conservative. So as a result, I think they don't tend to change the pattern. And so therefore, the property investment boom, which really is only 15, 20 years since uh, so many people bought properties, millions now, I think they haven't caught up with it because they're simply looking backwards all the time. Absolutely. But you are an investor and you have built this team and you spoke about some of the things they do. Why is it that the average investor doesn't realise just how important a solicitor is? Because it's not just, can I buy this property, is it? No, I think I realised when I, pre-COVID, I did a lot of face-to-face networking. I do more perhaps online these days. Uh, and I regularly say I'm a solicitor, I'm an investor. And probably half of them would say, I've got a good solicitor, perhaps less than that. And half of them would start moaning and ranting about how awful their solicitor was. And, and, and I thought for a while, I, I, I can take the criticism. And I think they were right. And after a while, it occurred to me, because too many of them, are, as investors, are going to residential conveyancing solicitors who, who normally buy a house for Mr. and Mrs. Jones on the local estate. It's their dream home. They talk about yeah. the speed, but it's not really about speed. It's about emotion. Investors, however, are different. There are so many different things involved. Firstly, speed is of the essence. You lose the oh, deal, yeah. etc. number one. Secondly, you start adding all the other things in. So increasingly, they buy in companies. You have JVs. You have options. You have lease options, all sorts of overages all these things that the average residential conveyancer struggles with and sometimes won't admit to it. So therefore, within my team, I've got 22 people doing conveyancing. Only a few of them actually deal with investors because they know what investors need um, and the others don't. Absolutely. So this straight away, if you are new to property, you could already be booby-trapping yourself by not realising that you've you've got to interview your solicitor and get the ones that understand investment because it isn't about just picking your file up every Monday and going, well, is there another question that we can tick off, is it? No, absolutely. And, and they have to be more proactive. You, you want to push ahead. And, and some solicitors are very reactive, sadly. Uh, and some firms are very slow. We still come across firms who send things to us in the post. You know, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's hard, to, hard to believe. Uh, and, and some make a, a dog's breakfast out of everything, whether it's taking client details on, etc. There are ways to make things more complicated. And some solicitors, I'm afraid to say, I'm embarrassed to say, manage to do so. Absolutely. And when when you've got these specialist teams, you may have to pay for more than one lawyer or you may have to have a group. So you mentioned options, which I know a lot of people are starting to think are coming back into play because of the marketplace. Who deals with an option? How do you find an option solicitor? Or is that well, well, we do. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, what do they call them? I, I guess you know you can go online, you know, and sometimes you'll you'll find them online. Not many of them, but I think probably it's solicitors who've got experience of more commercial work. Uh, you know, right. Uh, options are pre- were predominantly commercial. They still are very common in the commercial market. It's perhaps been less common for residential. So 
for example, the most of my investor work, unless it's very straightforward stuff, most of it's dealt with by a couple of guys who do with both residential and commercial. They understand both. So therefore, things yeah. like options aren't a problem or overages because they've come across them in their commercial life. So I think on the whole, unless it's more straightforward, having someone who knows that, that side probably means they have more practical experience of actually doing it. And what is an overage to those who haven't come across one? Before? Well, an overage basically is um, if you uh, buy land, for example, and you uh, and you want to develop on it, uh, the initial deal may have contained an overage clause, which is that you will pay a sum, often a percentage, of the profit you make back to the original owner. It, so it gives them, I suppose, a stake in the extra profit. And uh, purchasers quite like them because it means they don't have to pay for that risk. Uh, the risk so is shared, it, it, effectively. Absolutely. And it, it, it's along the lines of what people call a hope, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and so you've got these different sorts of things. Now, you do hear the gurus around and about banding rules for your solicitor, one of which is they must be you know, available 24-7 on the end of their mobiles. That is not perhaps the way to choose your, <laughs> <laughs> no. um, your solicitor, is it? Uh, not, but, not unless well, you want them but, to have a heart attack and, 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 and give up practice within a week. You know, clients and clients can be quite demanding. You know, rightly so, they pay a lot of money. But at 24 hours a day, um, it wouldn't be something I did. I was once a duty solicitor, so I was called out in the middle of the night to the police station many years ago, and it's tough. Yes, absolutely. But there is this idea that if you are um, dealing with auctions, then you you know he's got to be there, you know, waiting for your call. Should there be a change in a law pack? But actually, th that sort of rules change now because things are online far more, isn't it? You can deal with it much more in advance. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a good solicitor is someone I think you, not just who is good technically, but it's someone who you trust to tell you the truth and, and to be open with you. So, for example, sometimes our clients have left reviewing legal packs for auctions to the last minute, and they say, "Can you help?" And actually. If it's really short notice, sometimes you can't because perhaps what they don't realise is, yes, we could charge a bit more, but all that would mean is the rest of our clients who would actually slip down the list and that's not fair on them. So I think you need a solicitor who's honest with you. So if they can't do it in the time scale, they'll tell you. And sometimes we do. I hate turning work away, but if we can't do it, we will always say we can't do it. And I think you need to therefore find someone you can trust who's open and rather than just being looking at as a one-off transaction, getting the cheapest, find someone you want to work with long-term, who you trust, who you can run things past, you've got an issue you can ask, who talks to you, who will be open and honest with you, uh, and um, yeah. rather than someone perhaps who simply tells you what you want to hear. And that's because it, it, you're both working towards the same goal, isn't it? Which is getting the right thing for your client. Absolutely. You know, too many solicitors, I think sometimes, and clients are obsessed with the process. To me, law is all about getting to an answer. How do you solve that problem? Yes. Uh, and I think that's what clients really want. They don't really want to know the details of the process. Some do. But the majority, they simply want the problem solved. And also, because that, you just put your finger on the thing about that, is that most really good below market value deals are price that way because there is a problem somewhere and usually it's the solicitor who can unpick the problem yes and and, and i think sometimes going for problem property sometimes actually is, is a strategy in itself yes we do a lot i think i mentioned earlier lease extension now some of our clients surprisingly few actually have short buying short leases as a strategy because they know sometimes these vendors have been told by estate agents yes you'll get this price for it but no one's going to pay for it because you can't get a mortgage it's got a short lease and so they know there's a problem but they know this solicitor can, can solve it Another thing we do a lot is absent freeholders. It's surprising, but quite a few freeholders just vanish. You can't find them. I've got clients who, who are finding these deals at this moment, and that is something that, that they, they've, got, they've stumbled on because although I'm saying, no, 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 this does happen, this, this is quite normal, they are new in the game and they just go, that can't happen. I, I'm never going to be able to buy it. But you're saying here, actually, no, there is a way around it. What do you do? How do you track them down? 
Well, ba- basically, um, you have to take ver- various steps, uh, you, you know, uh, to research. But um, if you really can't track them down, there's what's called a vesting order. And my guys do this a lot, both if you can't find the investor and also sometimes if freeholders don't respond, you can actually threaten them with a vesting order. Broadly, a vesting order means you apply to the court, say, we can't find the freeholder. You've got to prove, so you'd have to prove adverts and process agents, all sorts of things. But if you can prove you've done whatever is reasonable to find them that, and they give you the order, you can then go to the first tier property tribunal and they will either deal with your lease extension or buying the freehold of your house or in your block without the, uh, the the involvement of the freeholder. Now, the good and bad is, the bad is there are extra legal costs for you because you're having to go to court. The bad is it does take a little bit longer. But the good thing is there's no other side. So first of all, no. you don't have to pay for their costs because they're not around. Uh, and secondly, usually you get it for a cheaper price. I can't guarantee, but normally what happens with these things is it's not a site, it's an art. And so you get a surveyor on one side who values and a surveyor on the other side who values the premium to buy the freehold or the lease extension, and they meet in the middle at the end of the day. But here, as long as you put forward a reasonable offer that's not mad, the, the courts have got nowhere else to bounce off. So the chances are they're going to take your viewing. So therefore, often you'll find a cheaper price. And what happens, you then pay the court, the court sits on the money. If the freeholder ever turns up, the freeholder says, can I have my property back? No. Can I have my money? Yes. And that's it. They can't do anything about it. So as a result, it, it, it actually can be an opportunity. And the good news is because so many people, including agents, have no idea of the answer, they run away screaming. So therefore, the price of these properties sometimes is much cheaper. So it's cheaper in the first place and often cheaper to get a lease extension or freehold purchase. So again, investors don't need to be legal specialists, but they need to know what the issues are and who to go to. And there's one. So absent landlords, vesting orders, us. Absolutely. That that is very much the fact that, you know, as an investor who wants to find these sorts of amazing deals, part of your job as an investor is to then find the team who's going to work with you and go, yeah, you're absolutely on the right line. This is what we're going to do. You're happy with that. Off we go. Absolutely. Because there are a lot of opportunities for this to happen. And I think at the moment as well, I, I, I might be wrong, but this is my theory, is that we're getting quite a long way down from the, the moment when everything starts to get digital. And we've forgotten that there's actually a bulk of stuff out there that is actually still held, deeds are still held on the paper because they've never been digitalized. And those people are dying. Yes. And their their relatives don't know what they're looking at. And they're throwing out the ba- you know, the bathwater with the baby. Um, and I have to put my hand up to that. We did actually find we 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 were doing a um sort of looking back and just doing a few things when we were writing a will and we found we owned a house that we didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it happens. It, it, it sounds ridiculous, but in the same way that freeholders, you know, how can a freeholder miss a block? Well, it happens. It does. You know? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, these these things can absolutely be work in your favour and not be frightened of them. And I think the other thing is that solicitors realise and savvy investors realise is that estate agents and other so-called pro- property professionals may not actually know everything. Mm, absolutely. Their, their role is to actually just put everyone together and hope that it all works. They vary. Some of the old-fashioned traditional ones, there's some real expertise there, but certainly some of the, perhaps the the later generation are just sales. And there's a big difference, I think, between a professional who really understands all the issues and valuation and some of the guys who simply want to sell you whatever they can and then sell you a mortgage on top of that. Um, And and they they almost certainly won't know. And they have lease extensions. Often I see property and it doesn't mention the length of the lease, which is mad. You know, sometimes this yeah. is a short lease and they simply haven't spotted it. So the poor old vendor <laughs> is trying to sell his property and can't work out why nobody wants it because it's a short lease and no one has told him. It's basic stuff, but yeah, it happens. Yes. And so talking, you mentioned the word mortgage there. Um, there's this great belief that 
you, you've got to use a sausage machine to get your mortgage done really quickly and everything else. You've got no, as an investor, you've got no control over that, have you? It, that's why you, you should be working with your normal legal team. If it's all possible, I, I'd say so, yeah. Um, I did a, a remortgage last summer uh, and um, on the other side, the, the guys who were dealing with the, the, um, the mortgage company, oh, they, they're one of the big firms. It was terrible. The, the, the guy they had was clearly hopelessly inexperienced. He didn't know their own policies. It just took forever and then someone else was taken off. It really was a horrible experience. Effectively, it was a law firm, but this was some, uh, you know, I got the impression actually he was 16 and had been at school for a week, you know, but uh, and I, and, and I'm, imba- I'm actually embarrassed when I see that. By my professional, I can see when I when I hear come across that, and I came across it as an investor. I understand sometimes why people do have a go at solicitors being all useless, but it's not the case. There is a big difference. Absolutely, and you also touched there on leasehold because this is this has become quite an exciting subject, isn't it? I mean, who knew leaseholds could go? <laughs> The exciting subject of the day, but it is, isn't it? Because there's been quite a lot in Parliament. And, uh, uh, where, what have you seen coming through well, or know about? I, I'm with you that I didn't think leasehold was exciting, but I've actually taken on a new leasehold lawyer who starts in in December. And when I had my first interview with her, the first thing she said is leasehold really excites me. I love leasehold, and it was you know it was like a five year old getting a new Christmas present or a bike at Christmas. It was lovely. So yes, it can be exciting if you're that kind of person. But yes. Leasehold, lots of kind of changes. Um, in terms of history, going back a few years, there's been lots of grumbles about leasehold not working. And there are real issues there. And, and some of them are appalling. But the Law Commission reported about three or four years ago, it was enormous to report. It was something like 300 suggestions for lease extension, 300 for this. It was colossal anyway. The government then came out when Boris Johnson was in power and made lots of lovely big general statements. We're going to sell leaseholders thousands. We're going to do this. All rather vague. The first thing that actually happened happened last summer, and it was ground rents. And again, there was a big fuss about ground ground rent that, that um, the leaseholders are being ripped off. And certainly some ground rents were getting quite high, partly because in the 70s in particular, it was very common to have uh, doubling clauses every 10 years. Now, that was sensible at the time because inflation was high, a bit like it has been recently. And so actually doubling every 10 years wasn't unreasonable. When you go down to low inflation, of course, it looked rather mad. So what the government did, they made all these things were to abolish ground rent. Well, they did, but for new leases only. Right. It made a big difference. So getting a new lease, either if you buy a new, uh, a new, a new brand new build or if you do a title split, and so someone has a freehold splits it into individual flats, or sometimes the lease can be so old, they just make a, a new lease. Anything like that, no ground rent, any other ground rent still carries on. And one of the reasons they did that, and it's relevant to what they might do in the future, is because who owns freeholds? There are companies and businesses out there who own enormous numbers of freeholds. For many years, we acted for someone who had about 16,000 freeholds, for example. And he wasn't the only one. But more importantly, one of the big owners of freeholds are pension companies. And pension companies love freeholds because freeholds give an absolute guarantee of what your income will be in future. And there are very few things that do that. You know, if you buy shares, they can go up, they can go down. But with a, with a ground rent, you know what it's going to be this year and you know what it's going to be for the next hundred years. Anyway, so one of the reasons they backed off wiping out ground rents entirely was because of the pension companies. The government, particularly Conservative government, would not go down well if they abolished uh, ground rents and hammered the pension companies. All the, all the little old ladies and men who, who vote Conservative w- would not be happy. So that was that. So now we've had the King's speech because there's lots more talk about what's going to happen. Early this year, Michael Gove and others were talking about abolishing leasehold entirely. Then quietly said, well, actually, we're not going to. I don't think they were ever going to in reality, but there was a, a fuss about it. An excitement about yeah, it, Yeah, absolutely. Yes. But actually, the King's speech has got some information. And I'm, in case I don't miss anything, I've made a couple of notes. Basically, there are only a few things. And again, it's a little bit on the vague side. So at the moment, to get a lease extension, you have to own the property for two years. 
unless the vendor has done so. They're going to abolish that, so you can do it immediately. That's good. Uh, it simply opens up more lease extension, yeah, which is great. Yeah. Next number, the lease extension is going to be changed. So the standard statutory, this is a formal process you have to go through with notices. You get an extra 90 years automatically, and in general terms, freeholder can't refuse. That will be 990 years. I'm not sure it's going to make a major difference. If you've got a 70-year-old flat and you get 90 years, 160, like at my age, I'm 61. I'm not particularly bothered in 160 years' time. So 160 or 990, it's not going to make much difference. But anyway, it'll be an improvement. Better thing is they're proposing new leasehold houses are banned. There are a remarkable number of leasehold houses, millions of leasehold houses. Many- that strikes me as being weird, it, it is. because why would you want a leasehold house? Exactly. Some of the big builders, Taylor Wimpy and Persimmon, did a lot. We've done a lot of cases. Actually, we've bought out the, the, the freeholds, and there's been a lot of investigation there. But also, it was a weird series in the northeast, in particular Sunderland around there, called Tyneside Leases. Uh, and there are a lot of houses traditionally. You'd be surprised how many there are. So there are millions. But anyway, that hopefully will go. Ground rents in future, they're talking about consulting. Well, you know what consulting means. I'm going to talk to someone. It doesn't mean anything at all. So, Yes, in fact, finally, consulting, I saw, I got sent something to, by yeah, HMRC or whoever it is who's consulting, asking me to fill it in. But the, the questions were so confusing. I thought, <laughs> this is not designed for little landlords like Yeah, so I, I wouldn't guarantee anything on that. So, again, they're looking at capping ground rent. But, again, the problem is it's all about inflation. If it was simply linked to inflation, for example, that wouldn't be unreasonable. But anyway, so, so that's been done. Now, that was broadly the leasehold stuff. There's lots of talk about something called marriage value, and that's significant because marriage value kicks in at 80 years. So if you um, have got a lease that drops a minute under 80 years, the price goes up of extending it. They were talking of abolishing that. But again, I I wonder whether that'll be the case, because again, all these pension companies have invested so highly in that, and they'd lose a lot of money. So the only other thing in the King's speech really was in terms of landlord and tenant. Many people would have heard of Section 21, referred to as no fault evictions. The government said they're going to abolish that at all, which wasn't good for landlords. However, in the King's speech, they unsurprisingly started waffling. So now what they're saying, it's on the shelf. And actually, you need to go, the court's process needs to go through significant reform first. So whether it'll happen, when it'll happen, how it'll happen, who knows. My instinct on this is that probably nothing further will happen. They also said they were uh, they were recommended to have a housing court. Their own, uh, a government committee recommended a special housing court. Again, just before the King's speech, they came out and said, no, we're not going to do that. Although these are plans, bear in mind, they're not even in draft legislation yet. Um, Absolutely. So you can't bank on no. them, can and, you? And I think the, the, um, the gov- this government has to call a general election by January 2025. They never do it at the last minute. They won't want to do it at Christmas. So my understanding is the two options they've really got, either a next spring or next autumn, and equal or possible. Now, there's a lot of legislation they're talking about. So whether they can get round to this, given the fact they've got at most probably 10 months in real terms, perhaps as, as few as six, to get all this done from scratch, who knows? So Yes, and of course, it's not just a case of coming up with a piece of paper and waving it in the House of Commons, no, is it? Absolutely. You know, it it's, it's got to go into committee, then it has to go to the House of Lords, and then it goes back again, and then it gets re-amended, and then it goes back to the Lords. There's actually quite a huge process in order to get this stuff changed. But hopefully some of the things... Even if we get some of the good crumbs, that will be better than nothing. Um, because even for non-investors, this buying property is so important and it can be where they put their money and suddenly their money is worthless. Exactly. And, and, and I think one of, one of the issues for me is constant change. Um, it, it, businesses and, and pro- investing in property is a business. You need security. You need to know what's going on. The danger with all these things chopping and changing, it creates uncertainty. And one other thing is interesting is uh, despite all the criticism of the whole leasehold scheme, and there is huge, there are all 
sorts of problems. And let's face it, there are rogue freeholders who don't maintain the block and rip people off the service charges. What's interesting yep. in Scotland, where they've got a similar system, what's called common hold. Now, common hold is, a, is, is available in England, but in 20 years, 19 have been formed. <laughs> 19. So when the government says, let's have more common hold, well, you could have done it for 20 years, but you've only had 19. Nobody wants it. Anyway, in Scotland, they have a similar system, but there's a real problem there with the maintenance of block. Because what they've found is, although in theory, you own your own house, you look after it, particularly when you get to bigger blocks, it's actually quite hard to, to, to everyone pull together and put in cash. And, and unlike the system where you've got an independent freeholder who you can sue if he gets it wrong and is legally responsible, it's not the case if you have freeholders, or rather you own your own freehold. So actually in Scotland, there's a major problem, much worse in England, where despite apparently having a better system, they have a much lower level of um, building maintenance. And it's not something that's ever discussed. I read that in The Economist a few years back. Fascinating stuff. I can see that that would be a problem because you know if you are a young, thrusting uh, person in a flat and you've got a great income, you're going to start viewing the pensioner with slight dubious. Are you going to be able to afford to put new windows Absolutely. in? Because, you know, even since I've been doing property, the changes in legislation and what people assume is a normal, modern way of living has changed beyond all doubt. I mean, you know, sink double glazing was very new and exciting at one point, and we forget that. I mean, I remember my grandparents putting in heating. Yep. Well, heating in those days was two radiators in the downstairs reception rooms. Everywhere else wasn't heated. And you think, you know, that, that that's a big difference. So how can blocks of flats hope that everyone will be able to put the same amount of money in is sheer mad. And, and, and the risk is entering with, with more government legislation. Again, I don't think it's happened yet, but tenements, which are a particular type of property in Scotland, and are particularly poor quality. And so as a result, the government have been discussing a number of things, and I think they're still discussing this in the Scottish Parliament, whether they introduce automatic five-year housing reviews, where the entire building has to be read the cost of that. So I think that the danger is, although these things sound great, the danger is that accompanied with more and more and more legislation, regulation, that always means more cost. Absolutely, it does. And that, that puts people off for a start, doesn't it? Now, the other thing that, uh, one of the things that I found, because I now don't touch my tenants at all, because I've had one or two of these, is the old harassment order. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of harassment orders? And do you think landlords can do their job properly and risk getting one? Or how do they get rounded? I just have to open my mouth and I get accused of harassment <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but first of all, I don't touch my tenants. No, no, that's, 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 that's unacceptable, especially as a middle-aged man. Never do it. Um, but secondly, I'm not sure is the answer. Um, I, I'm a generalist. I, I don't run cases. I've never been a litigator. I don't know. I've got a specialist property litigator. I'm taking on another one. I, I could ask them, but offhand, I don't know. It's not something that anybody has mentioned, and I don't think we've even got it on our website. It's pretty comprehensive on the website. So the answer is I'm not sure. Yes, that was quite fascinating. That, you know, when my, even when my, uh, my letting agent has said, we're going to do this, that, and the other, immediately, usually from a tenant who is very probably what, slightly in the wrong or even majorly in the wrong. Um, I'm thinking of a major drugs uh, cooker <laughs> up where I who, when I sort of asked, for, I did send normal communication and said, Whoa, harassment, you mustn't, you know, I, I've got the right to live here on my, you know, nicely and quietly and all the rest of it. And so I, I handed that over to the solicitor and they dealt with it. But there are, you know, solicitors also deal with, for instance, debt collection, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite a quiet number from you. But I have to say, again, as a, an experienced landlord, I just hand that over to my team and say, could you deal with that? Because... You, there are processes you have to do, isn't there? There are indeed all these things, you know, and, and uh, although the government are, are trying to make the courts 
more friendly actually doesn't always work. One thing in particular is um, since legal aid is largely gone and, and they put the cost up, they're just about to put the cost of just any application to court up again by 10% next year. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and increasingly, if it's now under 10 grand, you can't get your costs back from the other side. So they're all the sort of things which make legislation expensive. But yeah, uh, you, you, as a result, you get more what's called litigants in person. That's people without solicitors. And although in theory you think that's great, you don't need solicitors clogging up the system. Actually, solicitors actually usually speed things through because they'll actually say, you can do this, you can't do that. Whereas some litigants in person have no idea of the law, no idea what they can and can't do. And it can be a nightmare to deal with. And actually it clogs the system up. And the system is badly, badly clogged already. And I've, at the moment, I can only see that, that clogging getting worse. There's no there's no sun on the horizon that suddenly says, actually, we're going to get back to a, a swift court system. It's, it's getting worse. Bit of a funny question, this one. But do you find that some new clients who come and you go, whoa, don't think I want to deal with them. How do you deal with that? <laughs> there was a phrase we came up with years ago, which I rather liked. Tesco carrier bag man. Okay. Oh. Tesco carrier bag man is someone who comes in with three bags or more of Tesco carrier bags full of bits of paper and says, I've got a case in three days. Can you sort it out for me? It's a final hearing. Here's the papers. You don't want them. So it's, it's my general summary for clients you don't want. So Tesco carrier bag man is one. You know, some clients are all good, but let's face it, people are, so we act for them. Yeah, there are individuals who sometimes become too awkward, just become unreasonable. We Sometimes we sack them. Uh, we had a big client a while ago who were becoming impossible to deal with, just, unre- just unreasonable. And we lost at least one member of staff because they were just so rude, so I sacked them. Um, so yes, solicitors yes. can sack clients. And we, you know, we, when we are picky, sometimes it's the work we can't cover. You know, um, a lot of particularly low-level litigation, because you can't get your client, you, you can't back from the other side. Actually, is it worth it? Not the same with housing, because yes. actually you need a house back. It's a big asset. So that tends to go ahead. But certainly smaller litigation, when people find under 10 grand, they can't get their costs back from the other side. Actually, it becomes quite an expensive process. Uh, and sadly, some people don't bother. Yes, and I think I think that's something. I mean, I, I had a, a you know a case of uh, of a, land, a letting agent being fraudulent against me. And you know it, I was completely in the right. I had all the paperwork sh- to prove it. And um, I had the most brilliant man uh, who just, just said, um, now, you're absolutely in the right, but do you want to throw more money out of the window? And at that time, my ears were quite closed because I was, oh, I'm in the right. I'm in the right. How dare this happen? But he just said, right, here are your options without using me. We did go down one of those avenues. Sometimes people using solicitors are just basically paying to hear what they've got to do, which is not using Absolutely. a solicitor, yeah. isn't it? And, and a good solicitor is someone who'll say that, who won't run a case just for the sake of it. We'll be honest with you, actually, I wouldn't do that. Um, we, we do say that to clients. You know, one, one thing that's not so much property related, but but um, contested probate, contested wills. You know, we always say to clients, do you really want to do that? Because you may end up with some more money, but the one thing I can guarantee is the rest of your family probably will never speak to you ever again. You know, it splits family, <laughs> which is probably the last thing the deceased person wanted. So yeah, sometimes we do say to clients, actually, do you really want to do that? And uh, yes. With, with neighbour disputes, odd enough, we we run a lot of neighbour disputes, um, and sometimes actually, almost money doesn't become the object. It becomes a matter of principle, and they throw good money yeah. after bad because they want those um, conifers cut down or uh, the, the fence repaired or whatever. So sometimes emotion becomes more important. But as long as the client knows, it's their choice. You know? Yes, yeah, that, that that is really really important. But is there something solicitors have to do if they reckon their client is? Slightly dodgy. Oh yes. Slightly is slightly is a movable feast, of course. Oh, I, uh, what, I, I, what absolutely. You... I, I, to be honest, I, I, this is not my specialty. I've got someone who does this, but yeah, the regulations are huge. So that, that's why money, the money laundering stuff comes in. So we have to establish identity to start off with. You know, we use something called third fault, which is electronic, a bit like the kind of things you get in a passport. You know, you just check your face in your uh, passport. So you have to get that right. You have to have a look at the source of money, and increasingly, if you don't, solicitors are vulnerable, and, and they do get hammered for it by the uh, the SRA and the Law Society. So yes, we have to be very 
careful of that, that we're not seen to be involved in money laundering or or, or illegal activity. So there are very, very clear rules about that. But perhaps the one exception is, is kind of criminal law. But even there, the, 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 the basic rules are fairly clear. You know, if you know someone's guilty and they're told you they've done it, you can't stump up and say they didn't. You can say... Oh, really? You, 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 oh, right. Solicitors do sometimes, but you shouldn't be doing it. What you can do, however, is say, just don't admit it. You know, just go not guilty and, and just don't make a comment or go no comment. And that's obviously often the case because there's no evidence. Yeah. So yeah, there, there are. Yes, solicitors have very clear rules. They're very, very, very heavily regulated, which is why you know you can trust them rather than your average unregulated will writer. You know, if your solicitor gets something wrong, we have a minimum two million. We've got more insurance to back us up. So if something yeah. goes wrong, and things people make mistakes. You know, you've got something to, to back up. And that, of course, you mentioned right at the beginning about it comes in with wills. Is this thing that if you are building portfolios, you know, you might only be buying a twenty thousand pound house now because that's the first one you do it, but give you thirty years, that's going to be two million or whatever. Trusts and wills are absolutely vital, aren't they? How early on should people think start to think about it? Wills, I'd say, on day one. Uh, even the government, who the government aren't great founders solicitors, actually, they say they've got. A, there's a quote I, I've got on the website, which I've taken from their website, which is, "You need to you know, get your will reviewed something like every five years." So, yeah, and you do because things change. So, for example, when I was twenty, I had no cash. Uh, I was a student. I hadn't got children. I wasn't married. My my life is now very different. You know, I've yes. got children, property, a business, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, life changes. Divorce changes. Children change things grandchildren change things so number one wills need to be done and it's if they're not it can be very expensive for tax and also you can end up with the money going in the wrong direction a good example being carabatees unless you know depending on the circumstances they don't have any automatic rights to your property though they can have claims on the house and that gets complicated as well but certainly when they've got more cash do we have a limit i don't know certainly i would say it certainly if you've got assets of I know recently we did an offer, um, a limited offer for people whose assets, excluding the house there, were over a quarter of a million. We will give some free um, advice on, on that kind of stuff. So perhaps that's one indication. Yeah. But I think, frankly, certainly wills much earlier. And if you, if you know you're going to build, then perhaps earlier again. Certainly don't leave it too long. We, we came across someone recently, very complicated. Uh, they lived partly in Italy, partly in England, £5 million portfolio in equity. And yet yep. they, they didn't have an accountant as such. They had a bookkeeper. So no tax advice. Oh, yeah, what? No tax advice, no IHD. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced uh, in the last six, nine months that the vast majority of property investors, th- one of the biggest gaps in their knowledge, and no one else seems to be talking about it but me, is actually wealth planning, IHT planning, inheritance tax planning, et cetera. Yeah. Um, no one seems to look at it. They get, they get complicated by the deal. They've got the equity they've made, how they're building up, but actually they don't really think about what they're going to do with it and the implications for the children, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and there's some people who equally understand trust, just think it's a way of avoiding tax. It's much more complicated than that. So there, I think that if, if you are serious about building a large portfolio or you've even got a medium-sized portfolio, I think you need to seriously look at that. You must have a will, must have a lasting power of yes. attorney. But I think once you get to a certain stage, yeah, I think you should seriously talk about someone who knows what they're doing. And it is especially Sarah. I've got 12 of my private client team who deal with wills and probates. Only one person deals with this area because she's so specialist. And that that is the thing. I mean, I, I know for us, uh, you know, because we've got multiple business interests and things, and we had new wills drawn up. And we had the trust man, we had the, inherit- the, uh, the tax planner and the solicitors who were actually drawing it all up in the same room. And then they would come away and they'd send us separate emails about whether or not we agreed this because, you know, they said, well, he might have been badgering on about this bit a bit too much. You know, how do we feel? So that, and it took a year because we had to keep going backwards and forwards. But 
the basics were there. We can then change in the future. But we knew we were absolutely on rock solid ground. And again, as you say, it's not a case of just getting a piece of paper from WH Smith and going, I leave X, Y and Z. No, absolutely not. No, And uh, I know the government's talking about changes to IHT, but you know, it, it, it does hit a lot of people and the bills can be enormous. Uh, the, the amount of money raised by it just goes up every year significantly. It is, it is now, a ma- I think once upon a time, it was in a sense, it was a tax on the rich. That's long gone. Yeah. It's now a tax on many, many people who don't realise actually inheritance tax is going to take a lot of their money if they're not careful. And far, far, far too many people pay far, far too much IHT. And of course, the other problem is it you've got a time, it's not a case of you've inherited this stuff and at some point in the next 30 years, you can pay the bill. It's you've got to, you've got to pay the bill within the time Absolutely. frame, yeah. which means that you could lose everything because you, you've got to liquidate it now. Absolutely, yeah, and, and it might be the wrong time to sell. Yeah, there are all sorts of issues. Yeah, and, and 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 again, it's not just one size fits all. It depends what you want. It's not just the money you've got. It's it's your circumstances, your situation, your plans, your wishes. Um, you know, and, and so I think sometimes online people say, hey, this is my situation, what do you suggest? Often a bit like, you know, should I have money um, you know, in a company or it should be individual? These things depend on your circumstances. It's, it's, bespoke. Do, yes. it's, it's yeah. uh, I think the government would love it to be, you know, press a button and, and you got the answer. It's not that. It's it's a complex area. And also things change because, I mean, when we both first started buying property, you couldn't get a, a limited company mortgage. You see, we all had to buy in our own name or we bought in a company using 100% cash and, and you know, all that kind of stuff, so that, and that, which isn't very tax efficient. So I can quite see that. But then, of course, everything now changed. And I actually had someone say to me the other day, well, the reason, obviously hasn't been in it very long, the reason why you now have to buy in a limited company is because only limited companies are professional landlords, which I thought was a bit of a yes, slur. Wrong. (laughs) And I said, you've been brainwashed. You know, you haven't quite got the whole story there. And I noticed that things are changing again. If the inheritance tax changes, there won't be so many people trying to incorporate. So, you know, again, there is this drive in some parts of the property world to incorporate your whole private holdings, which then brings in all sorts of other things. If you're going to do that, you need really good knowledge, don't you? These things are really complex. Yes. It isn't a simple, quick. I've been to I've been to a lovely property meet on a wet Wednesday, and in thirty minutes, I heard the answer to my prayer. I love the property community, both face to face and online. There is so much information, and the thing I love about it um, is the way people share. They really are open. You know, how can you know? I, I'm looking for such and such. People give enormous amounts of time to help people, but the the other side of it is sometimes when they're complex issues, it's a bit like asking a man down the pub. You know, I, I've gone online recently. I saw another one this morning, and just something like was simply wrong. Just just absolutely absolutely wrong. You know, they were asking a legal question, which they should have asked of a solicitor. They actually had a solicitor. And some of the advice was simply incorrect, 110%. So I think, yeah, um, it, it, I love the community, but you have to be aware sometimes, you know, you, you don't want to take tax advice from a man down the pub. Absolutely. And one of the other things that people do, and, and I'm a great believer in that, is if you are buying from a, a, an unsophisticated uh, investor, uh, vendor, you quite I mean, it's a normal practice, for instance, to pay for the other side's legal fees. But how do you go about? I know I've heard people say, oh, well, you can say they can only choose from two, which how, how do you go about that without falling foul of, of being almost a bully or misleading? Firms vary on this. Some law firms uh, don't like acting on both sides uh, entirely. You can do, but there are quite complex regulations. And over the years, the Law Society have actually rather unhelpfully in simplifying them, made them more complex because it's more about interpretation. You know, taking all the rules out and guidance and actually, so it's left to you, but if you get it wrong, we'll have a go at you, which is, which is not help, very helpful. 
to us, we, we sometimes do. So um, uh, going from one extreme to another. So one example would be, for example, I know we've done this recently. Parents um, have, a, have a house and a big field. They want to give a plot of the land in, in, in it to the son. No problem at all, both sides. You know, no money changing hands, maybe tax implications, but that's easy. No problem at all. They act for both sides, quicker, simpler, cheaper. Fine. Yeah. On the other hand, the examples you give sometimes are when the vendor is under huge pressure. Yeah, you know, to to sell perhaps is unsophisticated, and on the other side, you get a really pushy salespeople, and sometimes you do those, and there's lease options involved. Sometimes we'll simply say we won't act on both sides because we think we will be vulnerable to criticism, and if we are, then the vendor is as well. You know, th- th- there is a line where you have to be careful that sometimes these things could be unravelled if you're seen to take advantage or be dishonest or pressurised people. So yeah, if the person is vulnerable. I would certainly not just give them a choice of two. The danger is you're going to end up with somebody who doesn't understand lease options or something on the other side, but you have to be very careful there. And I think, I suspect when things get more difficult with property, and they will, it's cyclical, some of these things will fall out. I suspect there will be more cases coming to light uh, which will raise these as an issue. Um, haven't done yet because we haven't perhaps got to that stage in the, in the financial cycle. But yeah, I think you have to be very careful. And certainly if, if, they're, if they're very vulnerable, we would never dream of acting on both sides. I think it would be unethical and dangerous for us and for the purchaser. And that is something people forget, that little word, unethical. It's not Property is not just about making the maximum amount of money every single deal. It's also about being ethical and making sure that, that you do the right by both sides. And to a certain degree, if you're going to buy below market value and from vendors who need to sell quickly and all that, which is exactly what we all do, and we're all happy doing it, you as an investor have to spend enough time finding a big enough pool of solicitors that you can use and understand and recommend, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. You have to put the legwork in, frankly. Absolutely. And things have changed since my day as well. I mean, I remember just rocking up to my first solicitor and just sort of going, you know, here's my passport. Can Can we sign the dotted line? It does take a little bit longer now to send out a client pack, doesn't it? Which is your opening salvo, isn't it? Yeah, it can do. But um, I think investors need a better service. And sometimes they have to be prepared to pay for it. You know, if you pay, um, you know, if you pay peanuts, you're going to get monkeys. It's it's an old fashioned phrase, but it's true. You know, I know we're constantly looking, particularly with investors, how we can speed the process up. So, um, you know, as I said, so the the onboarding, for example, using third fault, so it's electronic, so that's no delay. We're actually setting up a new team to actually make sure that there isn't a gap from when we get the initial client inquiry, we say yes, to opening the file. We're going to have another team to send it out a bit quicker because sometimes lawyers are doing something else. So we are looking for ways around it. So I think you have to find people who understand the need for speed and just have an an honest conversation with them. It's all about communication and building a relationship. It's not just money. You need to find someone, as I said, going back to what I said, a trust. Uh, When I took over a firm a few years ago, they were very old-fashioned, in a sense, very different from us. But in some ways, I convinced them, and I I think I was right on this, that we were similar. Because although I was using modern technology and I wanted to be quick, et cetera, et cetera, I wanted to be the client's trusted advisor. I wasn't there to send sell a, a, a cheap service and move on. I want to have a long-term relationship with the client. They trust us. We trust them. We provide the service they need. The trusted advisor. It sounds old-fashioned, but I think it's what you need. Absolutely. And what, what do you think are the most common problems that investors cause their solicitors or get themselves into a not over? I think it's probably more within experienced investors. I think a lot of experienced investors, newbies, haven't done it before. I think they have no idea of expectations. And I think they suddenly expect everything to happen just like that. So if you are, you know, and you are being impatient, you know, perhaps go online to see what the process is or perhaps ask your solicitor. You know, you get a vibe, perhaps ask someone else. I think sometimes newbies can be that they expect things happen far too quickly, number one. Yeah. Secondly, almost every, well, every transaction has more than one party. 
and therefore right. the delay isn't necessarily your solicitor. So it might be the other solicitor. You know, if we've got uh, a chain a chain of seven, for example, and one of them is is dealing with um, with it by in terms of 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 paper, sending out snail mail all the time. You know, however good we are, yeah. we, we only as as quick as the slowest. Uh, part mortgage companies can be yeah. so the land registry don't get me started on the land registry <laughs> oh yes god that seems to have an enormous backlog doesn't I'm, it i i sent out a couple of um posts on facebook out of curiosity to see what the record was and the record i could find was 22 months that's a long time that's a long time so you can expedite my personal experience last summer was six months and that was probably more average um and you can if it's urgent you can expedite um, but even some of those expedited systems are, are slow as well so yeah so what else oh another thing unless you need to don't call your sister on friday afternoon a lot of transactions take place completions um so if you can avoid it friday afternoon is not a good time to, to ring your solicitor why, why do they happen on fridays i don't know Habit, I guess. Habit. So, so that, so, and they don't have to no. do that. You can, you can do it on any other day. I, I guess it's habit. I suppose also it's the fact that most people, perhaps if you're working, you've then got the weekend to move in. I suppose it's an ideal one rather than you know going back to work the next day, so you can unpack a couple of boxes at least. I guess. Um, but yeah, it, it is. It, I don't know what the statistics are, but certainly a very disproportionate number are Friday and it, you know Friday afternoon. My first house I bought, it was actually I think it was Christmas Eve. And, and I think I think the completion finally completed at five o'clock, and we were moving ourselves. So that was a little bit last minute. So I've been there. Yes. Well, that I have to say that that's not where you want to be, really. And of course, the other thing that most people don't realise is, as solicitors, you are in possession of quite a lot of funds, aren't you? Because you your your bank accounts hold enormous amounts of money going out and in, which. You, know, you have to control. It's, you can't just sort of circumnavigate it. And that is regulated as well, isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's probably the, 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 the most important thing, I suppose. It, it's it's the, the client account, the importance of the client account, and very rarely gets this if messed around with them. But yeah, absolutely, we have enormous money coming in and coming out. For example, last month, conveyancing alone, we took on 166 conveyancing in, in the month. So on the assumption that hopefully most of those will complete, that's just conveyancing alone. So you can imagine every month we deal with enormous sums of money, absolutely. And and, you know, for someone like me who use, well, I don't now, but I used to property source. So I was paid on exchange when everything else. I very much relied on my solicitor to know the ins and outs of it and to put things in the right place on the bills and to actually do the transactions. And But it is up to the person, well, up to me as the sourcer to make sure that my solicitor was happy with that and that they understood what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. communication is, is two-way. You know, the, the, you have to be open and honest with your solicitor. Um, otherwise, they can't help you. And the other worry that many people have now is that because we do everything online is the fat finger problem when we send information to the wrong place. Do people have to make sure that when they get a, um, a you know an email and things from their lawyers that it is who they say they are? Oh, ab- absolutely. And, and, and our systems are constantly being adjusted. You know, there are some horror stories where firms have been hacked, etc. Our systems are quite good, but they're about to go to, I can never remember what it's called. It's it's a lot of our systems and I've got the, the double authorization thing where you, know, you then get a phone to your phone. So in a sense, we are putting in more barriers and some people will undoubtedly moan and complain. But actually, oh, it's all about well, security. Yeah. We are very good about doing the minimum level of admin. You know, if something's not necessary, we take a step out. We're a great believer in streamlining. But on that particular thing, we're having to um, take more details. Just last week, we did an in-house check 
or we've tested all our staff with 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 the span of email, you know, and, and, and therefore saw if anybody had done the first stage, the second stage, the third stage. So yeah, it, it's important to get that right. And most firms do, but some firms perhaps need to be a little bit better, I'd say. Well, sadly, we could talk all day, but we have to wrap this up. What is the one piece of advice you would give to somebody who's new to property who's never had a solicitor? How do they start off finding one or finding one they like? Okay. Um, I would say find someone who really understands investors, okay, who's got plenty of experience. Perhaps go online and and see who's recommended. Have a look at their website. You can tell a lot from firms' websites, even if it's not the most modern website. Has it got the information? Is it open? Is it the kind of firm that you feel comfortable with? And talk to them. Yeah. Ring them up. A, A good example being just last week, it was a property investor who contacted me and I've come across him online. And he, you know, understands me trying other firms as solicitors as well. He tried five last the week before. None of them came back to him. He then had got another one who had to book an appointment in the afternoon. He, you know, we exchanged details. He rang me. I spoke to him. I put in touch with my colleague within half an hour, uh, and we took him on as a client. So that's a good way of testing how quickly they come back. You know, if you want to know are these firm people in tune with speed, that's a big issue. Do they communicate? Test them. You know, ask them. And the fact that these five firms hadn't come back, and this is a time where conveyancing is down. You know, what are they thinking? Yes. Mad. I, yeah, I love it because these are the kind of guys I have to compete with. And that's why we're growing it. It's not rocket science. It really is obvious stuff. Um, but five firms did not get back to him. Unbelievable. Well, that was very sage and wise advice. Thank you very much, Tim, for sparing the time today. That was most kind. My pleasure. Well, as you will have heard, if you want to be successful in property, then you've got to treat it as a serious business, even if you're doing it part time. And, you know, you may be fully committed to your day job, but whatever your approach to you, you have, Long-term strategy and understanding of what you're doing is absolutely essential. I work with property investors who do almost everything you can think of under the sun in property, but they're all keen to make every part of their business work. That is the key to success. They have strategy sessions to ensure they're on track to build that dream, kept accountable, know where they want to be at a set point, i.e. when they're retired, do they want to be asset rich and cash poor or growing old disgracefully because they've got fabulous cash flow. Knowing that kind of information means that you can plan accurately what you need to do for five years time and this year, right down to working out where you're going to get your funding and what kind of social media presence you need. This makes it so much easier to deliver your financial time and financial freedom. It really does. Other than being awfully busy working to somebody else's idea of what a property business should be. The only bit of the property markets that you can control is you and your business. So if any of this resonates with you, book a discovery call. You'll find how to do it at rachelfroughton.com and I spell my name R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And let's get talking. It's the first step to ensuring that every moment counts and that you can turn down the property world noise, fun though it is at networking meetings, and then just concentrate on you and your business alone. Thank you for listening to The Property Solopreneur with me, Rachel Troughton. If you've enjoyed this episode, do hit subscribe and kindly leave a review and share this podcast with anyone you think it would help on their property journey. If you'd like to get hold of my guide for building a successful property business, go to racheltroughton.com forward slash checklist. We only live one life. So let's get your dream a reality through building a profitable property business.